I am glad you're here today. As Michael said, I know that some in a gathering of this size come and, and you're in a season of ease in your life. And, and it is enjoyable and, and it is pleasant. And, and, and others of you may be here uh, with different descriptors of this season of life. Uh, and I'm glad that we have the gift of being family. Of being God's people that are uniquely related to one another because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm glad that we're here as we move into week three of this series that we're doing. In, uh, but God meant it for good, examining the life of Joseph. And if you remember in the first week, uh, we looked at uh, some general biblical principles about suffering to sort of give us a grid or, or a framework to work through the rest of the text. And then last week, uh, we looked at some particular promises that we have of, of being able to endure during trial, during suffering, because of God's faithfulness to us. And, and this morning, I want us to spend our time together in Genesis chapter 39, where we move from Potiphar's house to prison with some action in between as we are encouraged about enduring during the slow days of suffering. Because we can read Genesis 37 through the end of the book, through Genesis chapter 50, at a reasonable pace in about 22 minutes. But, if you start in Genesis chapter 37 and move to about chapter 45, where they're two years into the famine, about 22 years have Past. And so while we can read very quickly, Joseph's life maybe at some times looked like it was moving at a snail's pace. And so I want us this morning to be encouraged that if you're here this morning and you're in a season of trial, suffering, or difficulty, I pray that you are encouraged through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the truth of what we'll look at this morning. And if you're one of those who are in a season of ease, that you'll be reminded and prepared for what might come. Because in Genesis chapter 39, we have uh, the continuing part of the narrative of the life of Joseph. And I want to give a bit of warning before we read the text this morning. Uh, we're in week three of a narrative portion of the scriptures, telling the narrative of Joseph's life. But I want to remind us that Joseph is not the main character of this text. Not even of this chapter. Neither is Pharaoh and neither is Potiphar. Neither is Potiphar's wife. Neither is the baker and the cupbearer that we'll get to eventually. And neither are Joseph's brothers or his father or any... None of these people are the main character of this narrative. Who is the main character of this narrative? God. God is always the main character of his book. Always. And so right now, we're going to be tempted to drift into focusing more on Joseph than on God. Because we've read texts of, of Joseph's life, and we've heard talk, people talk about principles that we draw from looking at Joseph. But what I'd rather do is let Joseph be a, a sign pointer pointing us to God. And so right now, if, if you've been drifting, maybe focusing more on 
Joseph than on God, this is an opportunity for sort of a mid-course correction to come back into focusing on the main character of the text. And I want to give you a few questions that you can ask to sort of keep our focus in the right place. The first question that we can bring when we come to a narrative text like this is, what do I learn about God from this text? Just in the reading and observation, what do I learn about God from this text? One way we can do that is by looking for words of repetition or phrases of repetition. I'm giving you this as a little bit of a heads up that we're going to do that this morning as we read through chapter 39. Because it's bookended with some words of repetition that give us some pretty clear picture of the faithfulness of God. And I don't want us to miss that by just trying to look for Joseph. So what do I learn about God in this text? The second question is, how is God's character, His holiness, His power, or glory on display in this text? So how is God's character, holiness, power, or glory on display in this text? Third question, how or where does this text fit in God's story? In His redemptive work that is revealed in the Scripture... All the way from the fall to the end of Revelation. How does this particular text fit in this broader picture of what God is doing in His creation to reconcile all things to Himself? Michael prayed that even though Joseph didn't know Jesus' name yet, he still knew God. Knows His faithfulness. Knows who He is. And looking ahead to the time where one will come who will crush the head of the serpent. So where does this fit, not only in the book of Genesis, but also in the larger context of Scripture? So we can see what God is doing in this place, in this time, leading to the place, ultimately, where He will reconcile all things to Himself. And so with that as our, our introduction and our reminder, I want to just read through chapter 37. And we're going to look at some things about the context, things that we observe that are going on in Joseph's life, and then we're going to bring some principles that we can see from this text, and then we'll bring it to conclusion, hopefully in a reasonable amount of time. Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So if you remember just contextually, last time that we looked at his life in the first part of the text, that he and his brothers didn't get along well. You remember where they hated him, then they hated him even more, then they hated him even more on top of that, where they couldn't even speak a kind word to him. And then they said, well, let's, let's kill him. No, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. Let's at least make a dollar off this. And then they sent him away. Well, he ends up here. Verse 2, and the Lord was with Joseph. May want to mark that phrase. We're going to see it a couple times in this text. And the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And now his master saw that the Lord was with him. Remember repetition? You get a phrase two times in two verses, you may want to pay attention. The Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned he put in his charge. 
And it came about from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. For the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. And so he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. And now Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. And now it came about that after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? You may want to mark that phrase. Because while the text is bookended with God's presence with Joseph, there is an insight here into Joseph's life that points us to God. That it, it, A couple of the commentators uh, use, use some particular words here in this phrase uh, that dealing with Joseph's intent. That it would have been, he would have thought it would have been ridiculous to sin against God. So we, we need to carry and understand the, the weight of it. He's not just rejecting. He, he, he's, he's finding it ridiculous that she would even suggest such a thing. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about that as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household were there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. And he came in to lie with me, and I screamed. It came about that when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. And so she left his garment beside her until his master came home and then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And then it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now it came about that when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, This is what your slave did to me, that his anger burned. And so Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph. And extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail. So that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was what? With him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Context. You know, when you're a servant and you're the favorite servant, you're still a servant. I want us to understand that even though some circumstances were going his way at this time, the ultimate picture is that he was not at home with his family. He was not where he was, in his mind, probably supposed to be. He had been sold into slavery and he was still owned by another person. So even though... The immediate contexts were about as good as it could be. He was still serving as a slave in someone else's house in another country that was not his own. And things are going really well until they don't. 
But how could I possibly consider doing this evil thing and sinning against God? <coughs> wonderful motive, wonderful action. And things got worse. And so it goes from being the favored servant to a prisoner. But in prison, he became the favored prisoner. But if you're the favorite prisoner in prison, you're still in prison. So again, as good as things could be for the circumstances that they were. But God was with him. And not only was the Lord with him, but the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. God is present and God is at work in Joseph's suffering. And in his presence and in his work, he still didn't take him home. He still didn't take him back where he probably wanted to be because God's larger purpose is still at work. Remember, we talked about that in week one, that not all suffering is punitive, but all suffering is, anybody remember the first blank from two weeks ago? You're about to make my year. Not all, not all suffering is punitive, but it's all what? Bless somebody's heart who said purposeful. Right back there, thank you. I can take the rest of the year off right now. Somebody remember something from two weeks ago. Purposeful. If right now you find yourself in the midst of trial, be encouraged that it may not make sense, but God's not abandoned you. God's still at work. We talked about last week God's promises, that He's promised His presence. I will not leave you, nor will I forsake you. And Jesus told His disciples, remember, you remember two weeks ago, surely somebody remembers last week. Jesus said, it's to your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, then the helper won't come. And the helper's not only going to be with you, but he's going to be in you. So context. He goes from being a slave to being a prisoner, but the Lord is with him. Everywhere he goes, the Lord causes him to prosper, but he doesn't move him from his circumstances back to home where he wants to be. But in the midst of difficult circumstances, he's with him and is blessing him. God is present and God is at work. We need to be reminded of, remember, not what do we learn about Joseph? What do we learn about God? In the midst of Joseph's trial, God's faithful presence is here. In the midst of our trial, based on the promises that we looked at last week, God is still here. If today you're in the midst of trial, God has not abandoned you. God is here. And so in this context, I want us to see a couple of things, that sort of principles that we can pull into the, in the, the context of God's faithfulness and God's presence and the reality that God is at work in and through the trials that we may be facing. And, the first, and let me just go ahead and give you a heads up. I don't like blanks two and three. Now, I realize I wrote them, but I don't care for them. And, but when I, when I started really thinking about them, the, the outline had already been submitted, the bulletin had been printed, Jim had already made the PowerPoint, and it was going to be like a really big deal. <laughs> but if you read it the way it's written, it's not what I'm trying to get at with the text because it says, some, point number two, sometimes doing the right thing is rewarded. But because the focus in that sounds like 
do the right thing and it's rewarded. And that's not what I'm trying to get at. So I need you to add two words. I told the 830 service to come up with something better and they completely failed me. No, no, I've got two words for you. I don't need, I don't need suggestions. I've got them. I just need you to add two. Because I'm telling this to 11 o'clock as well. Sometimes doing the right thing is rewarded by others. So right by others at the end of that. Sometimes doing the right thing is rewarded by others. Joseph is doing the right thing. It's the first part of the text and the last part of the text. He's where he is, trusting God, doing what he's supposed to do as a servant. God blesses it, God adds favor to it, and it's rewarded by Potiphar. Now, causation is God's doing the work. God is adding favor to him. God is blessing what he's doing. It says it in chapter chapter 39, verse 2, that God caused all these things to be... And and in verse 3, even Potiphar notices that it's Joseph's God who is doing the work. Potiphar notices that everything he touches is is prospered. And so he puts him in charge of of all, all of his house. Sometimes doing the right thing is rewarded by others, but even though it's not Joseph doing the thing. See, that's what I don't like about the blank. God's accomplishing this. God is working in and through Joseph and in and through his trial, in and through his suffering, and even an Egyptian ruler is seeing who God is. So God is at work. And Joseph's striving to do the right things, it appears from the text, and God is blessing that, and it's being rewarded by someone else. But as we move down through the text, this is where we come to point three, that I really don't like it either. For the same reasons, that sometimes doing the right thing is rejected by others. So I need you to add two words, by others. Right now, you're seeing what a big deal it would have been to change blanks and bulletins and all that kind of stuff. It's a lot easier for you just to write them in. Because Joseph's doing the right thing. And in the first part of the text, we're working on the assumption that he's doing the right things because God's blessing it and he's favored for it. We know from the middle part of the text he's doing the right thing with the right motive. Because he says, how can I do this and sin against God? And there's an implication that how would I do this evil thing and sin against my master? But more importantly, how would I do this thing and sin against God? He's got the right motive, the right action, and it ends up in prison. That is counterintuitive of the way that we naturally normally think. We very often functionally think, if I have the right motive and I do the right thing, then therefore God's going to bring about a comfortable result for me. It's the way we very naturally think. Right motive, right action, comfortable result. Right motive, right action, prison. When A plus B doesn't equal C, it causes us question. And very often it comes out like this. I did A, I did B, I did not get C. God owed me C, so therefore God must not be good. Now, we might not say it so plainly, but that's often emotively how we feel. I, did, I had the right motives. I did the right thing. God owes me. Okay, if you ever say God owes me, pump the brakes hard right there. 
hard. People that say, I want the world to be fair, fair means everybody gets what they deserve and everybody gets the same thing. I deserve death and hell just like you do. I don't want fair, I want grace. There's not a blank for that. You don't have to add that anywhere. It's just true. But when A plus B doesn't equal the C we expect, we think either God's not who he says he is, or God's not able. Somehow my plan got derailed, or I must not have enough whatever. Neither of those things are true. Because Joseph had A plus B still equal prison. But not all suffering is punitive, but all suffering is what? Purposeful. God's larger plan is still at play. We have the benefit of reading all the way to Genesis chapter 50. We know how this plays out. What we don't have the benefit of is knowing that when the A plus B equals purple for us, we don't know how that's going to play out. However, we do know the God who's playing it out. Which is why we got to come back to the text and say, okay, I don't need to learn about what I can learn about Joseph and his administrative skills. I need to learn about God and his faithfulness. Because sometimes in our suffering, it's not going to be because we did something right, we did something wrong, we did something this, we did something that. Joseph did the right thing from what we can tell all the way from Genesis chapter 37 up until now. And it's ended up from him being the favored son at his father's table wearing a special coat to him doing the right thing. It says that he brought a bad report about his brothers. If you read anything about his brothers, it looked like his brothers earned a bad report. (laughs) These guys seem terrible. If you go back and look in the text, we looked at it in the first week. Joseph went out and checked on his brothers, brought back a bad report. And they hated him for it. And then he's the favorite son, and he's got a special coat, and they hated him even more. They couldn't speak kindly to him. It seems like these guys have earned themselves a bad report. So it seems like Joseph's just trying to be a good son, and it ends up with him being in a pit. And so I don't know what he's doing in the pit. I guess waiting to get brought out of the pit. His brothers sell him into slavery. They take him to slavery, and he's doing the right thing, and then it ends up in prison. If A plus B equals comfort or blessing or benefit or ease, and that doesn't happen, and we immediately begin to think things about God that are not true, then our, our view of God easily unravels. And I would say if that's the case, then we don't have a biblical view of suffering, and we certainly don't have a biblical view of God. Because if our understanding of God is shifted by what we experience, then we are viewing God through our experience and not through the Scripture. So sometimes doing the right thing will be rewarded by others. Sometimes doing the right thing will be rejected by others. However, at all times, our A plus B must be God-honoring. Our motive and our action must be God-honoring. We do learn a good lesson from Joseph in this text. How in the world could I possibly think about sinning against God? How in the world could I possibly think about sinning against God? Have you ever talked to someone who had endured some season of trial, who had become bitter to God? 
If God allowed me to go through this, then he must not be good or he must not love me or he must not do this or he must not do that. In the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, he's a prisoner in a place that isn't his home, being owned by someone else. He still has his eyes on God and still desires to honor God in his motive and in his behavior. It's unthinkable to think about what you're asking me to do. It's absurd. All times, in the midst of our suffering, our motives and our actions must be God-honoring. Because at all times, our suffering is under God's sovereignty. At all times. Abraham Kuyper wrote years ago, and this is an abbreviation of the quote, that there is no place in the universe that God does not declare mine. All the pictures from the the telescope that we're getting, all that kind of stuff, God says, mine. Let that thing go another hundred years, find another thousand pictures, mine. Mine. All of it, mine. Colossians chapter 1, we looked at it already, this this series. All things were made by him, for him, through him, and in him all things hold together. His. His. Whatever you're enduring right now, his. And he's good. He's faithful. And he's present. And he hasn't abandoned you. And maybe... Just maybe his larger plan doesn't guarantee our continual comfort at all times. But his, under his sovereignty, under his care. And I know there's this ongoing conversation of what does God allow, what does God cause, what does God... In this text, God causes these blessings to come to Joseph's life. God caused. There's causation in the first and last part of this text. Do we think for a minute that in the middle of this God causing blessing and prospering, a God causing blessing and prospering, that somehow in the middle of, the, middle of chapter 39, God just took his hands off the wheel and he's like, let's see how this turns out. Of course not, because we know that after Genesis chapter 39 comes what? Genesis what? Thank you. It better be 40 in somebody's Bible. That wasn't a trick question. Somebody said, Jesus. No, later. Jesus comes later after chapter 39. Chapter 40. There's going to be some guys in prison that Joseph has some conversation with. And they're going to forget him. Isn't that encouraging? Right when you think it can't go any worse, he gets forgotten. Here's a phrase, there's no blank for it. It can always be worse. Don't, ask, don't ever ask what else could happen. <laughs> Something. Sovereignty. Because we know that at the, end of chap- at the end of Genesis, Joseph's second in command of not the house, not the prison, but the nation. He's second only to Pharaoh. He's running the nation. And it's easy for us 
knowing the end of the story to read chapter 30 because we or chapter 39 because we know it gets better. The struggle comes for us personally when we don't know what our chapter 50 looks like. And all we know is that we're in the midst of our own chapter 39. And it seems like things just went from bad to worse to worse and now somebody forgot me. Now, don't read into that that you're going to be second in command of the nation. But what we can know is the same God that is at work in Genesis 39 and Genesis chapter 50 all the way to the text, through the text to the coming of the Messiah and all the way to the end of text that tells us what's going to happen in the end of all time. That same God is the same God who's sovereign over your struggle. That same God is the same God who is faithful and who is present. See why it's so important that we don't get lost in the weeds of the characters here and we pay attention to the main character of the text? Because what we see on grand display is God's faithfulness to his servant. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord, four times in this text, we're reminded the Lord was with him. In the midst of his trial, where he leaves him in the midst of his trial, God is with him. Because God is faithful and God is at work, He's present. So our suffering is under His sovereignty. Always. Because what the adversary would love for us to believe is that somehow in the midst of our suffering and our trial, God has abandoned us. That somewhere in the midst of our suffering and trial, that we are somehow alone in that. That nobody else could possibly understand how I feel. Or what I'm going through. And this is not theological calisthenics. This is real-time practical stuff. That wherever you are, if you're approaching a season of trial, if you're coming out of a season of trial, or if you are slap in the middle of it, God is present. We looked at the promise. Not only is He with you, for a follower of Jesus, He is in you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So now what do we do? What do we do with this one chapter where we're not looking at who appears to be the main character? We've got to pay attention to what God is doing. And how do, what do we practically take from this? Well, we look at see what do we learn about God. God is with us. So if he is with us in the midst of our trial, then what do we do? How do we, how do we conclude this? Rest in him. Rest in Him. What do we learn about God in this text? God is present. God is sovereign. God is at work. Take those same principles that are unchanging. Where we are, God is present. God is sovereign and God is at work. So rest in Him. What do I mean by rest in Him? 
in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your trial, where you are right now, rest in this fact that God is faithful. That God is sovereign. There is nothing in this world that is outside of His control. God is indeed good. God is loving. God is full of loving kindness. God is slow to anger. God is quick to forgive. Where do we see all those things? From the text, from the scripture. You're like, I didn't see any of those things in chapter 39. No, but the Bible's a lot bigger than just Genesis chapter 39. And all through that book, God's character is on display. There is nothing that he said he will do that he will not do. He said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Jesus said, it's to your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the helper won't come. Who will not only be with you, but be in you. God is present, God is faithful, God is at work. So rest in Him. Secondly, as we rest in Him, trust in His work. Trust in His work. Because if He is all the things that the Scripture says that He is, then His work will be consistent with His character. And He may just know some things that we don't know. And He may just be up to some things that we can't see. Rest in Him. Trust in His work. Third, enjoy the blessing of His people. Enjoy the blessing of His people. We're told in the New Testament that one of the ways that we love each other well is that we bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Enjoy the benefit of His people. Michael talked about groups earlier and living life authentically with each other. And in those smaller groups is where we bear one another's burdens. And you think, what, is that, what does that look like to bear one another's burdens? If you look, do a little word study there, it means to help carry something. And it's, it's physically talking about a burden, but we know the picture is talking about life, just carrying life. But I've got a picture of this in my head when I think about bearing one another's burdens. I've had the, the opportunity to go to Honduras four different times, and I've always taken one of my children with me. And three years ago uh, was the first time that Campbell and I went. Campbell plays bass guitar. He's, he's this one. And three years ago, Campbell and I went to Honduras, and, and we, were, we were loading up the, the stuff for the day, and we were putting things on the bus. We were finished with our work today, and we were getting ready to go back to the to the, to the compound where we stayed. And the little boy uh, who was there that was working uh, alongside us was trying to pick up a heavy cooler that he couldn't quite, couldn't quite, well, he couldn't get it at all, but he was trying really hard. And so Campbell came over and picked up one side of it and they started carrying it to the bus. And I happened to be behind, so I took a picture of Campbell and this little boy carrying the cooler. Couldn't carry it by himself. Somebody came along and picked up and off they went. And you go, oh, Thank you. Some of you are like, well, what was in the cooler? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Bricks, it doesn't matter. It was heavy. Little boy couldn't carry it. Campbell came along and rescued him, bore his burdens. That's what it means. So, two months ago, 
Same country, different city, different sun. This one. Because we've only been here 12 years, and some of y'all are still like, uh, which one's Campbell? I don't know. Don't worry, I do it, I do it too. <laughs> Loading up for the day. Might have been the same cooler. I don't know. Little girl was trying to pick it up. You couldn't quite get it. So Graham came along, picked up one side of it, off they went. I thought, can't, can't miss this. Uh, notice that neither of those places was I carrying a cooler. <laughs> I've got sons. I don't pick up heavy things anymore. Three years apart, different sons, same picture of the church. Some of us would rather die than ask for help. And we are struggling with whatever brick is in that cooler. And for whatever reason, we won't ask somebody to help us. Pride, ego, shame, whatever it is. I don't know. You got your own cooler. And there's a church full of people that are waiting to pick up one end and help you carry it. Because we were not designed to live life isolated from one another. We were not designed to live life independent of one another. Dependence is not weakness. It is by divine design. And two things that I want us to end with today. I want God's people to be encouraged because he is present and at work. And I want us to be engaged with one another so that we can do what Jesus said. When they said, what is the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The next one's like it. Love your neighbors yourself. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. If you're struggling, if you're hurting, if you're in trial today, I want you to know God is at work. And secondly, I want you to know that you're loved. And, and we can be family. And nobody has to struggle alone. Let's pray together. Our Father, you are good. You are gracious and powerful and faithful. You weep with the brokenhearted. Lord, I pray that through your word today, that you'll just simply accomplish your will and that we'll be responsive to you.